Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Legal Face Off, our holiday edition on WGN Radio. Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. It's one of our co-hosts that joins us as always, along with Rich Lenkoff of Downey and Lenkoff. I'm Joe Brand, and we're going to start off with the amended marriage equity bill, which is heading back to the House of Representatives before heading to President Joe Biden. We have Jennifer Pizer, chief legal officer at Lambda Legal, the oldest and largest national firm geared towards rights in the LBGTQ community and national leader in protecting same-sex couples and has consulted on marriage bills in multiple states as well. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be with you. So Jennifer, last week, President Biden signed into law the Respect for Marriage Act, which is a historic law, particularly against the backdrop of an increasingly conservative political climate, including our Supreme Court. The act was in response to Justice Thomas's concurring opinion in Dobbs, where he suggested that the court consider revisiting the Obergefell decision. Prior to Obergefell, 32 states prohibited or likely prohibited same-sex marriages. In the event the court does heed Justice Thomas's call to action and overrules Obergefell, how does the Respect for Marriage Act help mitigate against the impact? Yeah, so the Respect for Marriage Act um, does a couple of things. One thing is that it repeals what we say the so-called Defense of Marriage Act that was passed in 96 that says that valid marriages of same-sex couples would not be respected for federal law purposes, federal benefits, social security, tax, and the range of the immigration. Um, that law had been on the books until the Supreme Court um, blocked it in 2013 in the Windsor case, uh, but it's still there on the books. And so this Supreme Court perhaps could revisit the Windsor decision. So the Respect for Marriage Act repeals the Defense of Marriage Act, supplanting it with a rule that requires for federal law purposes that uh, valid marriages of same-sex couples and interracial couples and other couples must be respected for federal purposes. The other important thing that that, uh, this new law does is say that valid marriages are to be respected state to state. So it does not require that states that want to discriminate against same-sex or interracial or other couples, that states must license all sorts of marriages. Um, Obergefell said marriage equality, law of the land, states must license marriages of same-sex couples. So the Respect for Marriage Act does not um, address what states must do for couples who are unmarried. But when couples are validly married, states must respect those marriages. Um, this is Congress using its power to regulate uh, the way states interact with each other and that states cannot, you know, essentially divorce couples against their will. If they're va- validly married, they're going to stay married and they don't have to worry when they travel that a state will treat them as unmarried if, in fact, they're married. So, Jenny, that's a win, but it's not, you know, um, as far as we would like. Right. So why did this piece of legislation not go the extra step? and do what you suggested, uh, what we've explained it doesn't do, why doesn't it legalize same-sex marriages in every state? 
Yes. So the Respect for Marriage Act stops short of telling states who they must marry because uh, basically the framers of this bill um, read the Constitution and the case law up to the present moment, um, including in particular what the Supreme Court said in 2013 in the Windsor case about the Defense of Marriage Act. And that was about recognizing that family law has historically been primarily the province of the states. And so Congress has explicit power to regulate how the states treat each other. That's the full faith and credit clause, and also has power um, under the commerce clause that is, is often about regulating how states treat each other. But, you know, there's a 10th Amendment in there that says that states have particular power, that Congress People, this surprises people sometimes these days, but but the framers of the Constitution thought of the federal government as only having specific enumerated powers. So even though the federal government these days is quite large, as our country has become quite large, it's still a body of limited powers. And family law is the primary province of the states. It's what the Supreme Court said in Windsor. Part of the reason that the Defense of Marriage Act was held to be unconstitutional was that it was pardon my language, it was screwing with the power of the states to regulate family law. So with this bill, Congress was being somewhat conservative and perhaps mindful that if they tried to do too much, there might be litigation, there might be a challenge. They wanted to write a, a law that would be really constitutionally sound and solid and and um, very clearly defensible. And I think that's that's the bill that they wrote and that's the bill that President Biden signed. So, Jenny, um, notwithstanding the passage of the Respect for Marriage Act, the LGBTQ community and the transgender community in particular remain vulnerable in the current political climate. What other efforts are underway to help safeguard rights for that community? Well, there are many efforts underway to try to obtain equal and safe and secure treatment under law for LGBTQ people in, in this country. One of the more high profile, profile efforts is the Equality Act that the House of Representatives has passed repeatedly. Uh, and in this last Congress, the one that is just closing out now, the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee held a hearing on it, but the bill never left the committee and came to the floor for a Senate vote. Um, that bill will certainly be reintroduced in the next Congress, and it aims to write explicitly into the federal civil rights statute books uh, that protection against sex discrimination includes discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity or transgender status, that these are all forms of sex discrimination. The, the Supreme Court recently said that in the, in the Bostock case. And this bill aims to add into a couple places into federal civil rights law protection against sex discrimination, where it, it doesn't, it's not presently there to protect against discrimination in places of public accommodation or programs and services that receive federal funding. Um, so the Equality Act is very important. There's also been very important work underway by some of our federal agencies to make explicit that the, the non-discrimination protections for housing and employment and healthcare and education, the protections that are there already, that they are explicit, that they protect LGBTQ people. Um, and then, of course, there's lots of activity at the state and local level. And I should say, let's not overlook the private sector where um, employers in particular, major employers, um, have been leading 
proponents of equal treatment at work, leading voices about how destructive to workplace morale and productivity it is when some people face targeting and discrimination. Um, the other area I'd, I'd highlight right quick is um, medical care voices about the importance of appropriate medical care access. There's been more focus on healthcare needs of transgender youth um, and the fights about that. And, and that's a very important area. Um, so I think, I think we have legal efforts and Lambda Legal, of course, is very involved in enforcing existing laws, working to uh, plug the holes, fill the gaps where the laws are insufficient. But we also rely on voices of educators, medical professionals, social workers, and business leaders that discrimination against our communities has no place in our society. And we'll leave you with a final question here. We'll be talking uh, in a moment with another guest about the release of Brittany Griner, obviously a very prominent member of the community. Um, how did you feel about her uh, imprisonment? Obviously, you know, we all felt. Uh, very bad about that, but how did you feel about her release? Well, her release was, it was beyond welcome. I mean, it was a joyful moment of relief. I, I think there were many, many parts of that whole chapter that touched a lot of people. I mean, Brittany Griner is somebody of such stature, literally, of course, because <laughs> she's very tall, um, and her accomplishments are so impressive. But as a person, uh, you know, a person of such composure in very difficult circumstances and that she spoke about her family and her wife in particular. And then to see uh, President Biden with Brittany Griner's wife together speaking about the importance of winning her release. And then the, the grace that she has provided since then in calling for the release of the other brave American who's being held there in Russia. I think there has been an alarm sent to many members of our community that um, there are parts of this planet that are not safe for us. Um, she was held for uh, sort of obvious political reasons, um, but we can be vulnerable in many ways, even being an enormous celebrity and star, that we can be vulnerable as people. Um, and so I, I think there may have been some awakening within our broad community, I hope there has been, that we need to have human rights for LGBTIQ people globally. Uh, and this needs to be um, something that our American government stands for in terms of international human rights. And um, and civic leaders globally need to say there's no place for this. Human beings need to be respected and safe and not used as political pawns. So it was a huge relief. I think it was a little bit of an eye opener. And it's really wonderful to see her home for, with her family, with her wife for the holidays. In many ways, ironically, you know, when you think about it, it was really one of the most groundbreaking moments in uh, the history of the community from a from a really bad place. But you saw a very loving family in the highest office in the world with the leader of the free world. So I think that really is kind of a watershed moment when you think about it, because you don't see that, unfortunately, very often in the White House or with with the president, you know, uh, to that degree of prominence that we saw last week. Well, I think President Biden has been involved as a as a public leader for a long time, and he understands the power of images. And among the things that I think are tremendously important about Brittany Griner and her family is showing that our community is made up of people of different races and statures and colors, shapes and sizes, enormous talent and composure and um, import, an important message of inclusion. I think that was very welcome as well. And President Biden understands the power of that. And we applaud him and appreciate him for making that happen. 
Again, that's Jenny Pizer, Chief Legal Officer at Lambda Legal. Jenny, thank you so much for the insight today. My pleasure. Happy holidays, everyone. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome back to Legal Faceoff. Last month, marijuana was legalized and approved in two states, but denied in two others. We'll talk about cannabis policy reform with Toy Hutchinson, president and CEO of the Marijuana Policy Project and former Illinois senator, along with former president of the National Conference of State Legislatures. Toy, thank you so much for being here today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. Can you explain to our listeners and viewers what the Secure and Fair Enforcement Banking Act is and what the current status of that piece of legislation is? Well, it's an effort designed to have cannabis companies at the entire vast array of banking and financial tools to run their businesses. As a lot of people know, but some people on the outside don't, is that as long as cannabis is a Schedule One drug, you know, listed on, you know, banned substances, marijuana companies, cannabis companies are essentially treated almost like they're laundering. So it has two effects. One is uh, a 280E provision, which is means that they don't get the access to the to the IRS. But in, in other words, no other normal cost of business, if you run a cannabis business, can be written off. Not your companies, not your employees, not your property, not your equipment, nothing. Um, that is a huge, huge hit. And then not being able to access banking is everything from the SBA to small business loans that you know are available to any other industry. Um, so it, there was a huge push. There was an incredible push to one, push it over the finish line uh, at the federal level, just because there was, there's pretty broad support for the fact that this is necessary. Not having bank leads to um, crime and very dangerous situations and tax evasion. And um, not only just the, just the dangerousness of working in an entity that's an all cash business. So um, if we really cared about the legality of this and, and actually moving this so that it could be an operate an operating industry like every other one, um, we really need access to banking, not only for the established companies, but for people trying desperately to get in. And that means all of our small operators, our mom and pop shops, and of course, the emphasis we've had on equity entrance into this marketplace. So time ran out, the negotiators ran out of time and... There was an effort to put it in the National Defense Act that was stripped. There was an effort at the last minute to put it in the omnibus bill. And as we've seen for the last um, five years, even though this has passed out of the House, I think seven times, um, it, we, didn't, we didn't make it quite there just yet. But interest is growing. 
people are starting to understand how ridiculous the situation is. And we're going to pick up, you know, all of our efforts in the coming new year because we can't stop. This is a multi-billion dollar industry, a multi-billion dollar industry. And there's not going to be a bell that unrings that makes it go away. So the best, the best foot forward is for us to regulate at all phases um, and, to, and to make sure that the, all the tools of our, our banking system are, are open to them like any other legitimate business. So Toy, you had mentioned, you know, the fact that, and it makes sense that up until now, these businesses have been largely relying on cash. What kind of dangers have there been to dispensaries that have been relying on cash transactions? Well, we, a lot of us have seen the stories from across the country. Well, we have 21 legal states, two that are not quite online yet. This just happened in the last election, but of the 19 that are um, up now, you've seen all kinds of stories about retail theft, about, um, you know, when there's, when there's unrest, people think there's money there. So even in, in times of social unrest, those, those dispensaries are targeted. Um, workers have been targeted. Um, there's just a, there's, there's an element of, this is not the wild, wild west anymore. Now people are expecting that not only can they get safe, tested, regulated product in a safe way, but that the places that you go especially since they're so like the security requirements for those places are so high. And the reason the security um, requirements to open up a, a dispensary is so high are exactly because they're all cash businesses. So anyone, you know, like whether you're a policymaker in the governmental space, it really is about how money is captured, recorded, and, um, and, and also reinvested into the, into the ecosystem. And if you're just a worker there, um, it's, it's a constant thought about whether or not you're going to be safe and they do everything they can to be safe. But, you know, as long as there is this underside, as long as there is um, the inability to really deal with the secondary uh, market, as long as there is still a situation where we have a patchwork of laws across the country that are not all the same um, and civil social unrest tied with the instability in the market where people are feeling, you know, those are, those are times when, retail theft and, and outright robberies and things increase. And so we all want this to be safe. This should be taxed and regulated just like alcohol, just like tobacco. We want this to be, you know, the, the manner with which we deal with the effects of those things are firmly, should be firmly in the realm of public health, education, advocacy, and public health, not the criminal justice system. Um, and people who work in those establishments who believe in the mission of people being able to use this plant to heal themselves for whatever reason you use it, safety and public safety and the public health um, guards, guardrails that we need are really, really important. And it's time for people to start to think about this like every other industry we have. Well, you mentioned bringing uh, and your efforts and the MPP's efforts to bring more equity to the space. We know, for example, here in Illinois, the rollout of legal marijuana has been uh, almost a disaster for uh, people of color trying to get into this industry. Uh, how has the inability to avail themselves of the banking system hit entrepreneurs of color particularly hard in trying to break into this emerging industry? Well, it's, um, it's almost like you can follow the through line. Um, it's difficult to get into any industry, much less a highly regulated Schedule One, still federally banned substance. That is... I mean, the, the amount of capital that you need to get involved in this. And, then, and states can do a lot 
and and we attempted to do a lot in the state of Illinois in particular. New York is trying to do uh, match what Illinois did and even more, even uh, increase the amount of dollars um, going back into communities and thinking about how businesses could get off the ground. It was top of mind when we were working on this effort. Um, the The sad part, the heartbreaking part is like, it, there's no match to being able to actually take your receivables or the thing you have of value and go get a loan against those things to open his business. We're talking about entrepreneurs who may not have deep networks of wealthy people in their, in their circles where they can just call and get personal family net loans. And when you look at the opposite end of the spectrum, we will hear all the ways about the multi-state operators and what is now corporate weed. We have big weed, just like we have big tobacco, big liquor and big every other industry. Um, where they have, they, some of them are publicly traded, but the markets are so bad that the, you know, it's not worth much right about now. So not being able to go to the capital markets at the top, not being able to access banking on the end means we're, we're literally consigning people to continue to do it in extremely difficult ways. And if you cannot pass that barrier, if you can't figure out a way to raise capital, um, then you can't stay online. You can't stay in the market very often. And that goes against what everyone is trying to do. Like literally everyone is trying to change the face of this industry. And that means getting people in, giving people a shot to be involved, you know, who aren't coming with private equity money. They're just really coming with a dream and a belief in the mission and trying to help people. There is a huge part of that. And we need to tell more of those stories. Or the obvious answer to resolve the issue that you're discussing is to legalize marijuana at the federal level. How close are we yeah. to that? Um, that's a billion dollar question. Uh, I, I'll say there's two tracks. One is that when President Biden just announced um, his latest executive actions, which included pardons for all federal um, marijuana uh, offenses or cannabis offenses, and you know we kind of go interchangeably about that. It's it, the federal government still says a lot. It still uses the word marijuana. Most of us in the industry use cannabis. Um, but it's it's. Um, I'm sorry. What were we thinking about? <laughs> Uh, I mean, given what Biden oh, did, legalization writ large. Yeah, it's a legalization. So the Marijuana Policy Project, the organization that I work for, believes wholeheartedly in movement amongst the states. Right now, the reason we have the industry we have and that people have access is because of what this organization has been part of leading across this country for the last 28 years. So we've we've consistently been disappointed by actions at the or inaction at the federal level. So we are going to continue doing what we do state by state by state. We had two wins in Maryland and Missouri this last cycle. North Dakota and South Dakota did not pass. And that is an indication of how the math has changed. All the low hanging fruit has been picked. All the states that will do it relatively easy in terms of which states are kind of leaning, would, would lean more toward it have done it. There have now been 21 states that have legalized in 10 years. We are now moving into deeply purple and hardcore red areas. And so those, the effort to change those things is going to take almost like it did when, before Colorado went down. And that was, it took eight years before Amendment 64 happened. So we're now looking at a map that's much more difficult. And so state work is going to be really, really critical. So we find ourselves in this both and category. We need to fight on the hill. And we also still need to open up new markets and embed equity programs into these new markets so that they can't be undone by any action on the Hill. So that's one track. The other track is the argument between descheduling and rescheduling. Um, 
right now our schedule, our the schedule that we work off of, um, that most people are familiar with, is largely a pharmaceutical model. So rescheduling, if cannabis can go down on the list, it'll take care of some issues, but not all issues. It would also drastically change how almost all the states in 38 states do their medical programs, how people actually access their plant medicine. Descheduling, though, which should be the push of we believe everyone, handles the banking issue, handles the criminal justice reform issue because it immediately stops arrests. Um, and it allows, uh, and it, it would really um, allow us to be able to be regulated most like alcohol, which is the way, which is the, way the general public has, has, has signaled that that's the way we should go. So we hope that there will be movement on the Booker-Schumer bill, uh, which was the CAO Act. And we hope that um, even in the new iterations of Congress right now, that Representative Nancy Mace's bill will get a hearing so we can flush out some of those things. That's actually done. It's drafted with an eye towards allowing states to continue doing what they're doing, um, especially the legal states that have gone on. But it doesn't prescribe legalization in every state. So in a deschedule environment, we'd still have to go state by state. And I, and I want to make sure that I point out before we end this, there are 19 states across this country that still have not even decriminalized, not even the basic modicum of decriminalization. So when you think about it that way, we have a multi-billion dollar industry operating. 48% of the people in this country live in a legal jurisdiction. That means 52% of us don't. And that also means that exactly what happened to Brittany Griner in Russia could happen to you in Texas, in Alabama, in Arkansas, in Louisiana, in Mississippi. So we're at a stage now where we need people to understand whether you live in a legal jurisdiction or not, that this mission is not done. Our work is not done, it is not complete. There are still hundreds of thousands of people living in jurisdictions that mimic the prohibition of the 80s and 90s. And that is untenable in the face of the fact that we have a legal industry operating. Again, that's Toy Hutchinson, president and CEO of the Marijuana Policy Project. Find out more at mpp.org. Toy, thank you so much for the insight today. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful holiday season, everybody. Along on Legal Faceoff, our next guest is Mark Heron, Senior Counsel at the Center for Reproductive Rights, also a former clerk for Judge Carolyn Deneen King. As we move to the topic of telemedicine abortions, may beginning after Judge blocks a Kansas law banning the procedure. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So, Mark, as Senior Counsel, the Center for Reproductive Rights, you argued the whole women's health versus Jackson case before the Supreme Court at the end of last year which is the case where the court refused to block Texas abortion ban, which ended most abortion access in that state. Against the backdrop of that case, as well as Dobbs, and given how quickly the legal landscape has been evolving since those decisions, where do we currently stand with abortion access in the U.S.? So currently, there are 12 states that have abortion bans, near total abortion bans in effect, um, a couple of other states where abortion is is just inaccessible. So there are large parts of the country where abortion is now out of reach for many patients, where patients are being forced to travel hundreds or thousands of miles to access healthcare that they had a constitutional right to access, you know, six months ago. Um, 
We are. We will see uh, over the next year. Uh, there are many states that have um, legislatures who are hostile to uh, abortion that are going to come back into session um, starting in January, and they have not reconvened since Dobbs. So you know, we will probably see restrictions passed next year around the right to travel or other or telemedicine or other uh, aspects of abortion. But what we do know is that, you know, when voters have a say, um, like they did in Kansas and in the midterms, they've made it clear they they don't want to lose um, their abortion rights. Mark, you mentioned telemedicine. How does that work when it comes to seeking uh, abortion or uh, reproductive uh, rights as well? Yeah. So just to take a little step back, so medication abortion um, is an extremely safe and effective way to access abortion. The FDA approved it 20 years ago, um, and more than half of the people who access abortion do so uh, via medication. Um, medication abortion is a two-drug protocol, and often the, the patient will take the first medication at the clinic, um, and then the second medication is taken about 24 to 48 hours later, um, often at the patient's home, but wherever the patient chooses. And then the patient's experience will be very similar to a miscarriage at home. So the, the addition of telemedicine to that process simply means that at the time that the, the physician or the qualified healthcare provider is prescribing or providing the medication to the patient, they aren't physically together in the same place. But the patient's experience with the abortion itself um, which, as I said, is similar to a miscarriage, is the exact same, regardless of whether the patient you know, met with the healthcare provider in person or through telemedicine. Now, we've, we've seen through the COVID-19 pandemic how effective and how widespread telemedicine has become. And for medication abortion itself, telemedicine has been widely used um, in several states, and it's been thoroughly studied and found to be as equally safe and effective as providing the medications or prescribing the medications in person. And so in places where you know, clinics are being forced to close, either because abortion is banned or because it's being regulated out of existence, especially in rural parts of the, the country, um, telemedicine is becoming a safe way to maintain access to abortion, to medication abortion in particular for many people. So, Mark, you had actually mentioned what happened in Kansas several weeks ago when a judge in Topeka blocked enforcement of a state law there banning telemedicine abortions. Um, and that was after the Kansas Court of Appeals had reversed that judge's previous denial of the injunction. While the ruling stopped short of declaring the state's telemedicine abortion ban unconstitutional, um, this could nevertheless be an indication of what may be to come. Can you explain for our listeners the significance of this development, both in Kansas as well as outside of Kansas? Sure, happy to. So um, with abortion now being banned in many states in the region, Kansas has become the closest state for many patients who are desperately seeking care, um, even if that means that they have to travel hundreds or thousands of miles and so what we're seeing in Kansas is the clinics are backlogged by weeks and they get hundreds of calls a day. Like they, they get more calls than patients they could possibly accommodate. So this injunction against the telemedicine ban in Kansas 
will give abortion providers in Kansas much greater flexibility in how they can see patients. So just for example, most clinics in Kansas have to rely on doctors who don't live in Kansas. They live and they have their practices in other states. They're licensed in Kansas, but they travel to Kansas to see patients at clinics in Kansas and provide care at those clinics. What the telemedicine um, will allow and what this injunction will allow is that those doctors can remain in their home states. They don't have to travel to Kansas to provide care, and they can provide care to patients who do make it, who do come to the clinics in Kansas. So the patients still come to the clinics, but now physicians can provide care remotely. And that should open up a lot more appointment availability and a lot more flexibility for both Kansans and for patients in states uh, in the region who are trying to travel to Kansas. And that's just the start. There are um, other possible ways that the use of telemedicine could be explored. Mark, what liability exists for doctors who are providing telemedicine care uh, if they happen to be in a state where abortion is still not legal or if the patients are? So it, it really depends on the state, and this is a state-by-state state analysis now that after Dobbs has really sort of returned a lot of these laws to the state. So if if a provider is in, say, California uh, and providing to a patient in, say, Texas where abortion is banned, um, you know, it, there's a lot of confusion and a lot of chaos over exactly which state's law would apply to that, and that chaos is exactly what you know, we're seeing as an effect of Dobbs, you know, the the potential for criminal liability, you know, Texas's trigger ban has a five to 99 year imprisonment um, per abortion. So that is really um, chilling the provision of care. And, um, you know, doctors are afraid that they'll lose their licenses. We're seeing states um, who are friendly to abortion care passing or considering shield laws to try to protect the providers in those states who may provide to um, um, patients in banned states. But, you know, exactly how those shield laws are going to interact with the bans is something we're just going to have to see how the courts, uh, how it plays out in the courts. In the meantime, we've just got a lot of chaos and confusion. Once again, that's Mark Heron, Senior Counsel at the Center for Reproductive Rights. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com.
How's it going, everyone? It's time to move on to the legal grab bag here on the Legal Faceoff podcast. Our two guests today, we'll start with Ron Safer, partner at Riley Safer Homes in Kinsilla. Ron, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. And he is joined by his future co-worker and full-time son, Adam Safer, joins us as well. Adam, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, Rich, let's move into our first topic, and that being the January 6th committee voting to refer former President Donald Trump to the Department of Justice and potential prosecution for trying to overturn the 2020 election. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, Tina, um, of course, unprecedented action in, 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 in another sense, though, really kind of meaningless. And, and the reason for that is because while the January 6th committee did finally conclude their investigation by referring to the DOJ for uh, crimes that they think that Trump committed. Um, it's really up to the DOJ, J, DOJ at this point. As as I think Chris Christie said on one of the Sunday shows, he, could, he said, like, do you think that the DOJ doesn't know what happened on January 6th? They do. So this is largely ceremonial. It's very political. But I think, you know, they'd be commended for amassing the amount of evidence they did come up with, you know, hundreds of thousands of pages of uh, testimony and texts and photos and videos, interviews. So um, I think it's very impressive work. And, you know, uh, we're all sort of, um, you know, inoculized by the fact that Trump does what he does. But remember, a, a, a committee from the United States Congress has accused our former president of not one, not two, but four very serious crimes. So Mind-blowing stuff. We'll see what the DOJ does. Uh, who knows how long that'll take. Jack Smith has been named special counsel by the president. Um, but uh, but that's where we are today. Yeah, Rich. I mean, this is stuff that, you know, we really haven't seen before. And um, it'll, I agree with you. It'll be very interesting to see what happens with this. But we also know that former President Trump is Teflon man. So um, I'm not so sure where this is ultimately going to end up. And would love to hear your thoughts, Ron, on this. Yeah, Ron, you are uh, 10 years of the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, Chief of the Criminal Division here for the Northern District. Obviously, this is in your wheelhouse. Um, how much influence do you think these referrals have on the DOJ, if any? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, none. I, I agree with you. Uh, in, in that sense, it's meaningless. But in the other sense, as you pointed out, they gathered an enormous amount of evidence. So they have tape recorded videotaped testimony under oath of individuals that will be extremely helpful to the Department of Justice. So the referral means nothing. The evidence behind the referral means everything. Well, to that point, don't you think one of the dilemmas that the DOJ has, and specifically Jack Smith as the prosecutor, is that now you have politicized something that could have not been politicized had this referral not been made. In other words, there's a longstanding tradition not to get involved in um, elections. And there's an election coming up, which this potential defendant is uh, a candidate. Now, anything that the DOJ does with respect to January 6th and beyond might be called and will be called by the detractors as politically motivated because of the January 6th committee. It was going to be called politically motivated no matter what happened. January 6th or otherwise, Trump was going to label whatever happened political. If they don't act, it will be labeled political. There's no escaping it. So I don't think the referral is an ad. I do think you have a very difficult question. 
The difficult question is we don't want to go around prosecuting former presidents for things that they did in office. On the other hand, when you really uh, attack the essence of our democracy, when you know that there was no significant voter fraud, when you know you lost an election and you rev up your supporters to literally attack the Capitol so that Congress does not certify the election, that's a tough thing to look past. You mentioned when you know, that's the key question, right? The key question and the key hurdle for the prosecution that comes to that will be intent, proving intent, proving that Trump knew when he made these statements, when he acted this way, when he tweeted this way, that his actions would lead to this. That's the key challenge there. And there's a solid argument to be made that that won't even get to court. That won't even get to trial. That wouldn't survive, let's say, a motion for summary judgment. Because, you know, Trump is going to argue that he was under the impression that you could do these things, that the vice president, you know, did have the ability to halt the election. So that's, I think, where one of the challenges are. No summary judgment in criminal cases. Motion to dismiss won't, won't work. Uh, this would go to trial. And the question is, did he intend to, to have this happen? Did he intend to have an attack? Well, when you, when it happens and you're watching it on television and you have the power to stop it and you choose not to stop it, there's strong evidence that you intended them to do exactly what they did. Ron, one last question from your experience in the US Attorney's Office. Having you know spent ten years uh, prosecuting very high-profile cases, how tempting is it to rush the process? We know that they're going to take their time. We know that there is lots of evidence to go through. But you know, on the other hand, we've heard a ton already. I mean, we've we've literally you know heard mountains of evidence of a crime being committed in the Oval Office. How tempting is it for the prosecutor's office to say, "Let's go. We're ready. Let's move this case forward." Very tempting, and as you pointed out, it's important that they act, if they're going to act, it's important that they act in the next several months. Because if they wait past that, then the campaign will have kicked off. Uh, Rich, the Chicagoland area is still recovering from the Highland Park shooting this past Independence Day. And now the father of the suspected shooter has been charged. Yeah, this is Robert Cremo. who is the father of the, we'll have to say, suspected Highland Park shooter. Uh, His name is Robert Primo III. He's now been charged with seven counts of reckless conduct, Tina, in relation to this uh, shooting. Uh, The allegation by the Lake County State's Attorney is that um, he was reckless in sponsoring the son's FOID application, that he, by his own admission now, has come out and said, um, you know, he had some suspicions of some issues, but he said he was following the law, following the process. He did nothing wrong. The state's attorney sees it very differently. And, and the bigger picture here, as we've covered many times on our podcast, is you know, to what degree do parents of mass shooters, uh, are, should they be held liable for the actions of their sons or daughters? Um, you know, a lot of these crimes are committed with weapons that are taken from the parents. Um, and to the degree that they are facilitating that knowingly or negligently by not securing their weapons, not seeking mental health help, not calling the authorities when they should. I think those are actual prosecutable crimes. Yeah, this one really hits close to home for me, Rich, because I'm from Highland Park and know some of the folks who are 
involved in this. And bottom line, I mean, this is not the type of thing you typically see in this situation. That being said, we've talked, unfortunately, about so many mass shootings on this show over the years. And given the particular circumstances, at least the allegations as to what um, the shooters, the alleged shooter's father knew um, and didn't know, I'd have to say it's pretty egregious some of the things that have been alleged in terms of what he knew with respect to suicide attempts, with respect to claims that he was going to kill everybody. Um, he lived with his son. And so although he is an adult by many measures, um, ultimately he lived with his father at least some of the time. And so I do think that there was a level of knowledge here that maybe other parents of of kids at this age would not necessarily have. But I, I, I'm not surprised that these charges were were brought against him. Um, it's just a terrible situation, and it really hits close to home for me personally. And Adam, you know, you know, from seeing your dad in action all these years and being a practicing attorney yourself, that you know sometimes the goal of a charge or of a complaint or a filing isn't necessarily the win. You know, you might know that you don't have enough evidence to win, but you know, part of the idea is to send a message. And I think the message in bringing a case like this is. Uh, to future, you know, mass shooters out there, and importantly, the parents of them or the guardians that pay attention, right? I mean, uh, if you've got guns in the house, if you've got a history of violence, if you've got a kid threatening to, you know, kill himself or others with a machete, don't just chalk it up to normal teenage rebellion. Do something. I think you're absolutely right, Rich. And you know, I think that this is the the type of prosecution that. Uh, has been envisioned by our lawmakers for a while now. Um, when I was clerking, I saw a straw purchase uh, uh, prosecution, and and it's a very bo- it's a very boring uh, trial. You know, they just go through the paperwork and say, "Did you sign here? Did you sign where it says that you were the purchaser of the gun?" Um, and and the defendant says says yes, and and I imagine that something similar would happen here. I don't know. Um, what exactly goes on to these forms. But if there's a line in that form that says you're signing for your son to get a, to obtain a gun license before he legally normally would be able to in the state, do you have any reason to believe that he's a danger to himself or anyone else? And if the father signed there, um, it seems like given what we know that that, that could be materially false. And I just think that you're absolutely right that this is a uh, this is a signal case that that is trying to crack down on more than just the shooter. It's trying to crack down on the people who are enabling the shooters as well. And and if we're not going to have tighter gun control, this is something that we're going to need. Ron, the father ran for Highland Park mayor back in 2019. He lost. But a police report shows that the police were called. When his mother, the shooter's mother, uh, complained of an attempt to commit suicide by machete, like I mentioned, he had a history of attempts. Why doesn't, in addition to charging the father, why doesn't the Illinois State Police bear some responsibility in this? They do. They do. You know, you, you wouldn't charge them criminally, obviously, but they absolutely bear responsibility. All of the red flag laws are in place for a reason. 
And if the police don't trigger those red flags, then you know, then we got to then what good are the laws? Let's move on to some more lighthearted topics. And Tina, it's it's a good thing both of our legal grab bag guests have the same last name today because now we're saving so much time getting to each of them. Like a lot of the law firms as they're consolidating their lengthy titles in their firms right now. Yeah, Joe. So this is a trend we've actually been seeing for a while, law firms shortening their names. And over the last few weeks, there have been several notable firms that have made moves to shorten their names, including a law firm down the street from us, Quarles and Brady, that shortened their name to Quarles. Saul Ewing, Arnstein and Lair, which was a firm that was combined several years ago with Saul Ewing with Arnstein and Lair, shortened back to Saul Ewing. And that and that was, you know, very recently also. And then Morrison and Forster decided to drop that ampersand between Morrison and Forster. So they're now Morrison Forster or just MoFo, as many of us have been calling them for years. Oftentimes, these changes are just to the market facing brand only and are not necessarily made to the legal name of the law firm. I actually saw it um, for the first time in a meaningful way 25 years ago when my first firm, Rudnick and Wolf, merged with Piper Marbury. Um, after the merger, it was Piper Marbury, Rudnick and Wolf, and then it became Piper Rudnick. And then we merged again and again. Um, the biggest merger being um, a three way merger resulting in DLA Piper Rudnick Ray Carey, which I'm sure all our listeners can understand why we ultimately decided to shorten that to DLA Piper. It was quite a mouthful. So these name shortenings sound cute and easy, but they can sometimes be a bit tricky. There are a lot of things to consider, including trying to figure out whose name in the long list of names is likely to have the most name recognition. Sometimes that can be tough to figure out you know, when you are doing a merger, but it becomes clearer as time goes on. There's also the desire to preserve the firm's history. And then you've also got um, egos that sometimes play out no, in these situations. <laughs> egos and lawyers, no way. No way. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that sometimes firms like Saul Ewing, for example, I think, and Quarles and Brady did what they did, what they called client listening sessions to try to get a sense from their clients and the market as to what they thought were the best ways to go with um, with the firm name. So, Rich, we know that this topic is near and dear to your heart now that you are the short Downey and Lankoff. Yeah, you know, listen, the ego thing, everyone wants to think, oh, it's about branding and it's about listening to clients. Nonsense. It's about ego. It's got who's got the most business? Who's the loudest? Who's the best fighter? I mean, how did you I like to be a fly on the wall for every conversation where you're the second guy, you're the second attorney, right? You're, and you're, you're like, wait a second, what? Why me? Why can't I go first? Because naturally, it tends to be like I would say 80% of the time, regardless of everything you said. It's just that second person who gets their name dropped because the first person is, is always going to be first. That's just the way the name has been. So even though the second person might now have more business, might be a better lawyer, whatever, they're always getting screwed. Is this an autobiographical statement? <laughs> <laughs> I'm formally changing it to Lenkov. That's it. LLC. You're all my witnesses. But but yeah, Ron, I mean, that's this is definitely a trend. I mean, the days of the uh, the L.A. law style, you know, eight. 
uh, name firms is probably out of trend, but maybe it'll come back. Who knows? These things always go cyclical. Look, we what we you know, just as Tina said, what we call a law firm and what their name are two different things. Scadden Arts, Late Mar and Flam, right? Uh-huh. Has been known as Scadden Arts for for as long as I know. Uh, I when I was at Schiff, uh, I was the managing partner when we changed our name from Schiff Harden and Wait to Schiff Harden, and I had to call Mr. Waits. <laughs> Not a pleasant task. Uh, I will tell the you that. The bad news, Mr. Waite. We're saving a lot of money on stationery. The bad news. <laughs> I, I will tell you that I I lost a fight, as I always do, to Judge Holmes, uh, who is uh, our managing partner now, Patricia Brown Holmes, former judge, former prosecutor, you know, dynamo in the legal field and outside the legal field. Uh, I wanted our firm to be called Riley Holmes, Safer and Kinsella, because I said, look, people are going to shorten it to two names and your name should be the second name. Uh, as with every argument I've ever had with her, I, I lost. <laughs> but, uh, you know, really, could there be a a a less a more trivial uh, change in the legal community than this? Well, Adam, the good news is you have now joined the firm letterhead with very little, you know, uh, very little, a lot less work than your dad had to go through. Let's say it that way. Yep, yep. I am, uh, you know, I am riding the coattails on the way in, but but ready to prove myself uh, uh, while I'm here. But I think, you know, Tina, you, you mentioned MoFo. I, I remember um, when I was interviewing for firms, that uh, that was that firm. Everyone kept talking about it, and it was actually very divisive among my peers about uh, you know whether it was hip or or embarrassing to work for a firm named Mofo. But I I do think that um, you know with with like McDermott, it's I, I rarely hear anybody say McDermott, Will and Emery, but they might say McDermott and they might say MWE. And I think if you have kind of a, a catchy acronym like that, uh, that that could work in your favor too, instead of instead of having to shorten everything. Petition to change the podcast to just the Lenkoff and Martini podcast, and we can call it Lima, <laughs> Lima for short. I like that. Seconded. Yeah, less is more these days, apparently. Uh, Tina, make sure you log your hours this holiday season because you don't want to be missing out on payments that you deserve like one law firm that's forcing their associates to. Yeah, Joe. So as we teeter here on the brink of recession, some people would say that we are in the beginning stages, at least of a recession. There's been a lot of chatter about comp and raises and bonuses, especially as we head into year end. And we've actually seen a number of firms announcing that they're moving forward with aggressive bonuses and raises, notwithstanding the uncertain climate. But in North Dakota, things are looking a little different with the law firm of Larson Latham Huettel, which is making headlines after having sent bills, as in invoices, as in you owe me money, to two former associates alleging overpayment when the associates didn't bill enough. The firm took both of the associates to court and actually won, and both cases are now on appeal. 
the, the, the deal here is that there was language in the firm's employment agreement that said in the event that the associate bills out less than the base quota for a three-month period, the associate's salary will be reduced appropriately at the discretion of the firm to make up for any discrepancy. And that were any discrepancy where the actual numbers of hours billed is less than the base hours required will be considered to be a debt owed by the associate to the firm by the end of the calendar year or at the termination of that associate's employment. So interestingly and not surprisingly, this agreement was foisted upon the associates in March 2020, just as COVID was hitting. Obviously, people were terrified to lose their jobs and partners were looking for ways to protect their business. And, you know, everything seemed like fair game back then. So it's not surprising that associates, you know, some of whom probably have had no experience with the law firm game before, were willing to sign on the dotted line to keep their jobs. So, Rich, in every firm that we knew of growing up, you know, a firm was going to take action against associate. If they were going to do that for people not making hours, it was usually by firing them. But under the terms of this agreement, the firm's probably better off just keeping people on the payroll, knowing that uh, they can just uh, bill their associates in the event they don't make their hours. Yeah, yeah. Assume make some money. You know, the uh, I read the complaint actually, um, and I read all the appellate documents. They're all available, and the uh, the the defendant's response can be summed up in a very uh, arcane, uh, little used legal theory. It was like, wait, what? Wait, what did I sign? What? I didn't know I'm signing that. Are you crazy? I mean, that's basically it. Like, yeah, they hired them during COVID. These guys needed a job. They signed whatever is in front of them, which is called what a contract of adhesion. I think we all know that is. And um, and then like then they get turned around and get sued. By the way, what's really interesting is this same law firm had a bookkeeper that stole like, I don't know, what was it, five hundred or two hundred thousand dollars from the firm, prosecuted criminally. And that's the same bookkeeper who was in charge of putting the documents together that were the basis of the lawsuit. So the, the defense is like, hmm, that's a little strange. Maybe, maybe their maybe their case isn't the strongest if they're relying on documents put together by this by this felon. Um, yeah, I don't know. I have to admit I sent it around to all my partners late last night thinking, here's a here's a theory too. We want to get people to people to build and maybe we sue them. But we're not gonna sue them. Um Adam, Ron, uh, you guys bill for your time. You've got uh, associates who uh, are required to bill time, I assume. Have you taken the step of suing anyone yet? Uh, interestingly, we don't have a minimum hour requirement. Okay. And, uh, and, and here's why. It creates a perverse incentive. Uh, you know, if, if it if somebody can do something in six hours, in three hours, uh, but they do it in six, that's that hits their minimum hours requirement. It decreases efficiency. It's it, they, this could not be more wrong in every way. Uh, it's just bad for the client, bad for the firm, bad for the associates. And not a great look trying to attract uh, new talent to the firm, Adam, in this very competitive market. That's that's exactly what I thought. I, I don't know how you hire an associate after word gets out that you've 
sued them for underperforming. And I thought particularly that that three month period is such a short period, especially I've worked I've worked all of my career in, in litigation as a litigation associate. It's feast or famine. There are there have been many periods where um, I'm billing, you know, six months worth of time in, in a three month span, but also nothing in a three month span. And uh, if I were if I had the threat of litigation uh, hanging over my head during during those lulls, uh, it, it actually would have been a real damper on my on my career so far because I wouldn't have been able to uh, branch out into really significant pro bono experiences and uh, and work up that side of my of my repertoire. Well, Rich, Glebe Road Park in Virginia is in a real pickle. The audacity for the town to go ahead and just restripe the tennis courts for pickleball. I'm glad we're covering this because it's about time these heartless lawmakers were finally exposed. You know, Joe, reading the story kind of soured me on some of these uh, stories entirely. Um, but yeah, it's just one example of the uh, pickleization of our society. Uh, pickleball is a hugely growing sport. And we know, Tina, with any growing trend, any growing sport, guess what? There's going to be litigation. If there's litigation, we're going to cover it here on Legal Face Off and bring it to our listeners and viewers. And you know, these lawsuits are all over the place. They involve people uh, alleging that public parks, public recreation is being used, um, not for the common good, but for the small percentage of people, although growing, who play pickleball. Lots of the other lawsuits uh, talk about public nuisances and also Noise violations, right? There's a, a lawsuit in many jurisdictions alleging that pickleball players are generating too much damn noise because of the pop the ball makes, right? And that's becoming a nuisance and it's violating sound ordinances. Uh, the problem is, if you're a uh, litigant, is that the pickleball community is growing. I saw one report that says that there's currently about 8 million pickleballers, picklers maybe, uh, in the US and they uh, think they'll be 40 million by the end of this decade. So uh, not only are they very large and growing, they're very vocal and well-funded and very um, proprietary about their sport. Uh, I know of uh, at least two tennis clubs that have converted a lot of their tennis courts to pickleball courts, and that's generated lots of lawsuits. So I am trying to pick up pickleball because I think I'd, I'd enjoy it. I'm, a, I'm an avid ping pong player, Tina, but I haven't picked it up yet. Speaking of, you know, old man sports, like we talked about earlier, uh, it is something that older folks uh, have taken to. Um, it's here to stay, as will be this litigation, I think. Yeah, Rich, I mean, I think that it's unfortunate. I, I Pickleball is, I have, not, uh, I have not played it. I know a number of people who have picked it up the last couple of years because it's really growing in popularity, but at the end of the day, there are things like noise ordinances and so forth. And, you know, I have not watched pickleball long enough to know how loud this pop really is, but it seems to me like it's actually pretty darn loud. And so ultimately, you know, there's plenty of places where pickleball courts can go where you're not, you know, upsetting people who have been in their homes for years and are otherwise used to an average amount of noise. That's my opinion on it. Ron, Ron, have you picked up the, uh, the pickleball? I haven't. Yes. I don't want to be sued. <laughs> I, I, you know, is it, it, right? No joke. If it does, if it disrupts your use of your home, on the other hand, at some point, common sense has to kick in 
this is not what the courts are for. This is there ought to be a a uh, public interest solution here somewhere. Put up some put up some tarps to dull the sound. Uh, there it seems like a lawsuit is not really the answer here. Yeah, and usually it's the opposite. Usually it's the old people saying, get off my lawn, you're being too loud. Now we've got a role reversal. We've got the young people suing the old picklers right. for make, making too much noise. Right. Well, you know, I, I agree. Uh, I think that uh, I've seen enough uh, Parks and Rec to, to think that this, this could probably be handled in a public forum instead of the courts. Joe, have you tried the, uh, the pickleball yet? I, I haven't played pickleball. I've played tennis. I've played ping pong. I've never played pickleball. Though. I've played badminton, too. That's that's a fun one, too. There's a little talked about sport these days. Yeah, it's much quieter. Actually, that's what they should do. They should change it to badminton courts, and then I think that solves the problem. Yeah. And is it badminton or badminton? I, I don't know. Do, do we have time for that to, to go deep into that? Index discussion. But. Uh, well, yeah, and plus, I, I really want to get to my best Banya impression from Seinfeld here. So <clears throat> easy Mac. Why don't they call it somewhat difficult Mac? At uh, least that's what one woman from anyone want to take a guess? What state? What state? Florida. Florida thinks she's suing Velveeta cheese. Rich. Any Banya is super meal. That's still, that's a good, that's just a good question for all of us is super meal. But uh, yeah, a woman in Florida just when Ron, you say that the courts are not being used to the degree, to the uh, the purpose of what we think they should be used. There's a woman actually alleging in a court of law, and there's an attorney, more importantly, who put his name to a lawsuit that says there are damages that uh, have flown from the fact that Velveeta alleges that it takes three and a half minutes to make. And she is the victim of deceptive and unfair trade practices, Tina, because it takes Longer than three and a half minutes. This is a uh, lawsuit that was filed um, by a firm out of West Palm Beach and also a firm in Great Neck. And the attorney who has taken on this case against Kraft, who, by the way, says that they're charging a premium, right? That the uh, Kraft is charging more because of the advertised speed by which you can cook this stuff. He has filed more than 400 lawsuits in recent years. Many of which we've covered on a show, right? It doesn't seem like a, a, a podcast goes by where we don't cover a lawsuit involving Subway not being too real tuna or the sandwich not being 12 inches or, you know, uh, uh, daiquiris not being made of strawberry or Pop-Tarts not being made, all this stuff. Where does it end, Tina? Where does the madness end? I don't know. I mean, I would say that this one of the whole plethora of the cases you've just rattled off um, that we've covered on this show, I think this one is is the most outrageous. I'm sure that we're going to get to one in the new year where it's even crazier than this one. There, there are so many things wrong here that like we could spend five hours talking about it. But, you know, the whole notion of First of all, someone making a purchasing decision based on this and that somehow they're being damaged because it takes five minutes rather than three and a half minutes. Furthermore, how do they know that it isn't their stovetop or the mechanism that they're using to cook this that is maybe old and doesn't cook as quickly? Like, I mean, there, there, there's so many things here that 
are, are wrong with this that, you know, I want to k- kick it to Ron and to Adam because I don't want to like, you know, hog the stage here on this. And imagine what goes into writing that complaint, you know, because they said that three and a half minutes is actually only the time it takes for one of the steps, not the complete steps. I mean, my God, the outrage that you thought it would take three and a half minutes for the like, who would assume that three and a half minutes? Like, how would anyone know? How would Kraft and Velveeta know that it will take you X number of times? Just some things are common sense, please. Right. And and the other steps are. uh opening the lid, pouring <laughs> the water in, and stirring in the, the cheese powder. My, my question is, uh, how are they going to prove that Kraft makes some sort of premium based on this, this three and a half minutes when, when everyone else is advertising instant mac and cheese anyway? I mean, it's not like Six Flags where you pay a premium to skip the line. You're not paying <laughs> a buck less for five-minute Kraft cheese. Maybe you're paying more because it's craft, not that not because it's three and a half minutes, you know, but, you know, that's something that a trademark lawyer would argue. So, Ron, take the other side of this. Take up the fact that this is a completely merit- meritorious lawsuit that is actually serving some purpose. Got to change the class action laws. This is a lawsuit that some, you know, slick lawyer uh uh, dreamed up along with a thousand other, as long as there's no tuna in Subway tunas. Uh, you know, and who profits from that? The lawyer, because no, nobody who buys the mac and cheese is out anything. Uh, you, you know, instant oatmeal doesn't take an instant. Let's sue them. It's ridiculous. And After if you need, Joe, maybe if you need to consume macaroni and cheese out of a cup in only three and a half minutes. There's bigger problems that you should be dealing with in your life. I was going to say, I mean, those are geared towards kids and college students. And after probably consuming hundreds of those prisoners, yeah, that that too. parents of kids. Okay, All right. Well, probably because. All right. I guess I got to eat this because it's just sitting here is probably what the parents are thinking. That takes more than three minutes anyway, because you got to let it cool off. You got to let the pasta absorb the rest of the water so it's not too runny because then it does become soup. Anyway, only hitting the hardest hitting topics here on the legal grab bag, which brings us just to our next, next segment. Just, just inject the, the, the craft gene right into your veins next time. It'll be a lot quicker, lady. <laughs> uh, let's get to our final and last segment, which is, you know, every time we have a holiday coming up, we just kind of replace it with the next holiday crazy lawsuit. So we move to Christmas holiday, and uh, there's uh, quite a few doozies here, Tina. No, you say that like so defeated and and bored of our. I mean, it's not like we did our crazy Arbor Day lawsuits. It's Christmas for Christ's sake. <laughs> Listen, I have to take this with my approach, with what my job is. So yeah. I'm just running out of ways to introduce this. So I'm sorry. That's that's where I went. Like, to uh, just another bizarre holiday <laughs> lawsuit. Show <laughs> <laughs> some love, Joe, while I do a costume change. Hang on, Tina. Go for oh, it. Okay. So as Joe mentioned, every holiday, whether it's Halloween or Thanksgiving or Christmas or Festivus or Hanukkah, we are talking about crazy lawsuits that people file. And so um, there are a lot of them, and we're not going to be able to cover all of them at this moment. But um, there are a few that we all took a look at, and I think they're all hilarious. And I would love to pass this along to 
my uh, my my fellow roundtablers with, but I of course need to mention one of my personal favorites, being the IP lawyer that I am through and through, the Greenberg Smoke Turkeys lawsuit mm. um, against Good Cook, where they allege that Good Cook was violating their rights in a fairly standard tur- turkey cooking um, recipe which as many of the IP lawyers out there, I'm sure there are plenty of them know, it's really hard to copyright a recipe. So I'm going to pass this on to Rich in his awful holiday sweater to see which one he loves the best. Yes, Howard John, ugly Christmas Is that your Anthrax sweater? That's it. That's right. That's exactly right. There you go. Joe's got one. Um. Yeah, my favorite was the, uh, I think we've covered this one perhaps before, but jo- Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who later was a friend of Trump, who uh, who ran, I think, for maybe governor of Arizona quite unsuccessfully. But he for- he was famous for uh, putting prisoners through the rigors. He didn't believe in any rehabilitation. He just believed in hard incarceration. And part of his plan was to uh, force jailers in Maricopa County uh, to... Uh, uh, play or, or to hear Christmas music all day, and he played Rudolph the Red Red Nosed Reindeer and Feliz Navidad and other holiday songs over and over. Uh, the inmates had enough and filed uh, multiple lawsuits stating that not only were their religious rights violated, which is a lawsuit we see all the time, but also that they were subject to cruel and unusual punishment in violation of their constitutional rights. Um, course the courts found that, that wasn't the case but i kind of sympathize with the inmates here Ron. what religion what religion is rudolph yeah exactly i think he's uh he's a non-denominational uh, reindeer but uh i agree ron if i was uh, if i was a judge i would have let that lawsuit go because man if i have to hear uh, all i want for christmas is you one more time i think i'm gonna kill a reindeer or something um, totally I agree i think it's cruel and unusual punishment that any any store that starts with Christmas uh, songs or lights before Thanksgiving should be forced to give away half of its inventory. <laughs> yeah, a lot of these lawsuits are on, Adam. I mean, they deal with, you know, a couple of serious topics are separation of church and state. Inevitably, every year we'll see lawsuits involving, you know, public displays of nativity scenes or even menorahs and People who either aren't followers of that religion or, you know, don't follow any religion allege that this is a improper use of public money. And I think there's something to that lawsuit, although those kind of lawsuits, it seems like it's been litigated already. And, um, you know, but but we still see cases like that every year. I agree. And I I do think that uh, every year some, you know, we make we make another step towards the progress of either. acceptance of all of all religions and all religious symbol symbols or um or at least getting you know public places to not not display them quite so prominently but i i do wish that we would make more progress on on the jingle bells front because i suffer from earworms all the time and uh and i really sympathized with with those lawsuits yeah you know know, the there's no question there is merit to to the public use of of religion, but boy, uh, religious symbols. But boy, in this season, it, you know, it is remarkable. I I will tell you the one thing 
that I remember from many years of Hebrew school is this, that when a cynic came up behind Hillel and said, if you can teach me all that the Talmud had in it, while I stand on one leg in a short period of time, I'll become a devout Jew. Hillel, without looking up, said, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. The rest is all elaboration. Go learn it. And I don't care if you have a um, Hanukkah menorah or a nativity scene or, a, you know, a, that's the essence of religion. Why is it, why do we make it so divisive, especially at this time of year? Well stated. And in the, uh, in the spirit of that, let's go around the horn and everyone give us, let's see, maybe your favorites. Holiday meal uh, food. What what do you love to eat at your holiday table? Instant you know, mac uh, and cheese. On, on, yeah, there you go. As long as it's three and a half minutes. What a what a depressing meal, holiday meal that is. But we're on day what three of Hanukkah. I'll I'll start with of course latkes. You can't go wrong. I make a I make a killer latka uh, secret recipe. Uh, Hanukkah food is amazing. Brisket, uh, but I'd have to go with latka. I might have st- stolen your thunder on, but. If you yeah. have a second choice of a holiday favorite, well, I was going to say latke as long as there's applesauce. Uh, you have to not have applesauce. Apple not oh uh, well, I can't can't go with you then. <laughs> All right, uh, Adam, think, what, what's your favorite thing to eat at the holiday table? Oh, we do we do a uh, a a cheesecake a cheesecake with a, a cranberry type topping. And a crumble on top. It's it's decadent. It's amazing. You said cheese. You said cake. You said crumble. Yeah, uh, sold. It's got uh, everything. Joe. I'm gonna be a little cliche here, but just a good old fashioned holiday ham with some uh, cheesy potatoes on the side. Very very uh, wholesome. Uh, good good old uh, Midwest meal that'll stick to your bones. Very good, Yvonne. Yvonne, you want to weigh in with your favorite? Uh... Our trusty producer, Yvonne. Favorite favorite holiday meal. Oh, yeah. I'm going to go with the instant mac and cheese, definitely. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I'm going to go with Joe's. Perfect. Ham and cheese. There you go. Uh, go. Tina, what are you cooking up there for the holidays? Well, you know, we've got a lot of things going on in my family. So um, for the Jewish side of the family... For the Jewish side of the family, I love a good brisket. So um, that's my been my favorite um, for a long time. And then I love Italian food. We actually did Italian, a whole Italian feast recently for Thanksgiving in lieu of a turkey. And we actually really enjoyed it immensely. So um, and some of our hardcore Italian relatives used to do Italian and fish and stuff um, for, for Christmas for many years. So I highly recommend that too. Sounds delicious. Absolutely. And we wish that everyone has a fantastic meal, a fantastic holiday, as we said, all of them that you celebrate. A big thanks to Ron and Adam Safer, our guests here on the Legal Grab Bag. And another big thanks to our earlier guests of the show, Toy Hutchinson of MPP, Jenny Pizer of Lambda Legal, and Mark Heron of the Center of reproductive rights. As always, we thank our producers, Yvonne Barbosa and Ben Anderson. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Faceoff podcast and do us a favor as well by giving us five stars. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. Have a happy holiday season. We'll talk to you in a few weeks. This has been the Legal Faceoff podcast on 720 WGN. 
It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.